you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Our Bible reading is from Nehemiah chapter 9 and verses 1 to 5. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabani, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. I'm Ben, not Paul. Sorry to disappoint you. Hey, so good to be with you. I've uh, heard lots of good things about City on a Hill West from a distance, and it's really enjoyable for us to be here today and to kind of experience what God is doing among you. So encouraging uh, to be here and be with you. I'm on staff at City on a Hill Melbourne. I look after our City Youth Program and our City Uni Program this year, as well as, as we said, preparing, planning, praying about planting uh, a church in Ballarat. And if you had told me that 15 years ago when I was a student, an undergrad student, I would have politely laughed in your face. The thought of going into full-time ministry was the last thing I thought I'd be doing. I was a Christian, uh, but when my minister asked me to consider doing a ministry apprenticeship after I finished uni, I said no. And I thought, heck no. There is no way I want to have to explain to my friends what I'm doing, not taking a graduate job at Deloitte like all of them, and instead I'm going into ministry. And yet here I am, because God worked in my selfish, stone-cold little heart. He warmed me up. He gave me a a deep love for his church. He gave me a love to to reach people with the good news of the gospel. He used his spirit in my heart and mind, I'm sure, but the tool that I'm conscious of him using was the Bible. I'd meet my minister to read the Bible together every week, and we were in Philippians, where Paul thanks God for this distant church for being partners in the gospel. And that's a phrase that stuck with me, partners in the gospel. A light bulb went off in my head that I'm not in the stands watching a game play out below me. I'm actually on the field, boots on, strapped up, ready to go. And that was a perspective shift that God worked in me. I did the apprenticeship. He changed the direction of my life. And one thing led to several others. And here I am. And I share this story with you because it's as clear a moment as I have in my life where God used his word to work in me. And that's what he does, right? God speaks and stuff happens. He spoke the world into existence with just his words. He speaks to people to draw them into a relationship with himself. 
His son, the, the word made flesh. Jesus speaks and storms cease and blind people see and the dead are raised to life. God speaks and stuff happens. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah puts it so beautifully. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I sent it, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Bible shows us time and time again that God is at work when people read his word. We're in our Rebuild series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And last week, if you were here, Pastor Coy preached a ripper sermon from Nehemiah chapter 8, where he called us to be people of the word, to, to have the word shape and direct every aspect of our lives. And, and this week, we get the people's response to the reading of the scriptures. And what we see in that is that God is at work in them, calling forth this response from them. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, today is a really good day to be here, right? Because you need to know right from the get-go that Christians really are crazy enough to believe that God is real and that he speaks and that we can hear what he has to say to us through the Bible. That is a central idea in Christianity. And so it is a great day to be here with us. Uh, looking at the Bible. And if you have a Bible, I'd love you to open it with me. Stay in Nehemiah 9. Or use that funky little web portal that you've got going here. That's fun. Uh, that's where you can follow along in the reading with us. Uh, let me set the scene from chapter 8. Last week, the, the Israelites are doing this nationwide Bible study for about three weeks. Uh, and then they get a day or two off. They go home, they have a shower, they feed the cat. I don't know, whatever the Israelites would have done. Uh, and then they're back together. The start of chapter 9, they're all gathered. They're wearing sackcloth. They have earth on their heads. This is like wearing black for a funeral. They are ready for mourning. They are getting serious with their sin. Come with me to verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. You see how the word is still at the center of everything they're doing? For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped their God. They respond in prayer, and this is where we get to see what God is working in them to fuel our expectations for what he will work in us. And, and look, he's always at work in many different ways, and he's at work through his word in more ways than we have here. But there are at least three ways we see him working here in Nehemiah 9 and 10. And that's neat because, you know, the best sermons come in three parts, right? And so we're going to have three. The first one is this. God sparks awe-filled worship. God sparks awe-filled worship. I, I love fishing on the bay. I say fishing. It's usually sitting on a kayak, floating in the waves with a line in the water. There aren't usually too many fish caught. Uh, but that's okay because it is a moment for me where God stirs up awe, right? You sit there as the sun comes up at dawn and you see the light bouncing off the waves. It is wondrously beautiful. And yet there's a mix of fear there because I'm still on the sea, right? Things could turn at any moment. And that's what awe is. It's that mix of wonder and fear. And, and I'm sure you've had those experiences in the natural world. 
But God actually takes us one step further when we read his word. He takes us from awe to worship. Uh, the first part of this prayer by the priests from verse 6, on behalf of the people of Israel, it beats with a rhythm of who God is and what God has done. Look with me at verse 6. Who is God? Well, you are the Lord, you alone. They've been living in Babylon in a, in a nation surrounded by people worshipping lots of different gods. But when they go back through God's word, the first thing they see is that there is one God. It's Yahweh. It's their God. Same thing in verse 7. You are the Lord. And then at the end of verse 8, they say, you have kept your promises for you are righteous. It's God's character that shines through time and time again. Uh, but that's the thing that, that draws them to worship. And yet, like any good shopping channel presenter will tell you, but wait, there's more. It's more than that. They worship him for who he is and for what he's done. Look again at verse 6. You made the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God is creator and sustainer of all that there is, but he's not distant, he's not far off, he comes near for relationship. We get this string then of the things that he has done as they trace their story through the books of Genesis and then Exodus. God chose Abraham, made a covenant with him. In verse 9, they worship God for rescuing their ancestors from Egypt, then for guiding them with fire and, and cloud and then with his word. In verse 15, he speaks to them at Mount Sinai. He gives them the law. And then again, he gives them bread and water uh, as they're wandering in the desert. You, you get the picture, right? God has been generous to them time and time again. God has been good to them. As they're reading these books from the Old Testament, these first five books, the Torah, their first response, their gut reaction is to worship God, filled with awe at who he is and what he's done. And in the Bible, when we get a long prayer like this, it is recorded as a model for us. It's meant to teach us. And so it's worth asking ourselves, as God's covenant people today, is this how we pray? Do we start our prayers with worship? My tendency is to read the word and then I'll kind of set it down and I'll get my shopping list out of the things that I want God to do and provide and fix and, and figure out. But here the challenge is to take the focus off me and put it on God for who he is, for how great he is. And you know, Jesus models exactly the same way of praying. Here he is, Matthew chapter 6, teaching his disciples. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Four statements where the focus is not me. It's God. When we pray, it is a good thing to slow down and praise God for the things we see him doing and being in his word. And it's a good thing to slow down in our lives and notice the things that God is doing in us and around us and through us. It is a good thing to turn those things into worship. 
And by the way, it's good for us. Martin Seligman is an author and a speaker on positive psychology, not a Christian, as far as I can tell. And he says that human happiness, happiness, depends partly on being committed to something bigger than yourself. Christians, we have that. We are committed to someone bigger than ourselves. And when we read God's word, we we mustn't miss the opportunity to turn that into awe-filled worship. That is what he will work in us, guaranteed. Second way God is at work here in his people is in heartfelt confession. Uh, Now, we live in an era of some spectacularly bad apologies, don't we? We get them from celebrities and politicians and and corporations, uh, so much so that we might have even given these apologies ourselves. Uh, I find a website this week that tracks these apologies. Fun hobby, right? Going through other people's apologies. Sorrywatch.com is the website. And their mission is to point out the signs of defective, weaselly, and half-baked apologies, as well as to call out and honor good apologies. And you know how these ones start, right? You've got the I'm sorry, but apology. When I'm sorry, I'm saying sorry, but really what I want you to hear is the excuses for my bad behavior, the reasons why I couldn't do anything but do what I did that hurt you. There's another classic, I'm sorry that you feel. Have you done that one? Where I'm saying sorry, but really, you're the one in the wrong because I didn't really do anything wrong. It's kind of on you that you've taken offense or you've been hurt by what really was pretty soft in the first place. Now we've heard them, we may have given them, but the trouble with these apologies is that they are not at all heartfelt, are they? And they do little or nothing for the person who is wronged or is hurt. They are a a PR exercise, a reputation in damage control limitation. Uh, They don't help us. And if sorrywatch.com were watching Israel in Nehemiah chapter 9, well, they'd be getting a shout out because theirs is a genuine and heartfelt, deep sorry. That's what God's word sparks in them. Because first they're confronted by his goodness and grace and they worship and we get that string in in verses 6 to 15 of, of what you, Lord, you have done. You see all the yous there and, and each one layers upon the next, but it only serves to amplify the big but in verse 16. Have a look with me at 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. It's really important that we see the, the back and forth that's going to come after verse 16, how God treats them and yet how they respond to God. So let's run through it quickly. Uh, In verse 18, they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt, and so naturally they worship the golden calf instead of God as their rescuer, and yet God is merciful. Then in verse 26, they confess guilt for their disobedient rebellion, for casting God's law behind their backs, for killing his prophets. And yet again, God is merciful with them. Verse 28, they have a rest, but then they do some evil again, and yet God is merciful with them. Verse 29, they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey, like a a stubborn mule that refuses to go the way its master wants. And yet, how does God respond time after time through their history? Check out this in verse 31. This is so good. Nevertheless, 
In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And it's not just the past tense, right? It's not just looking back. There's a shift in verse 32. Now, therefore, is the language present tense. Verse 36, they say, behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And this is the moment where they could do an I'm sorry, but apology, where they could throw blame on their elders, on their forefathers. It's their fault that we're in this mess, but they don't. Here's what they say. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They take responsibility. There is a deep conviction reading God's word. And how do they feel after this long confession? They tell us in the last line of verse 37, we are in great distress. This is no PR management confession. It's heartfelt, isn't it? And like their awe-filled worship, it's a model for us. Sin is not an Israel problem, is it? It's a humanity problem. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we are wired to resist and go our own way. We don't like living under anyone else's authority, never mind God's, who we, we can't even really see. But God's word works in us. He will show us how good he is and how far short we fall of a life of perfect obedience to him. And so look, as a church, if we are people of the word, we need a culture of owning sin and saying sorry for it. We can't give into a culture of half-baked, half-hearted apologies. And to cultivate that culture, well, it starts with, with you and I, doesn't it? As individuals. Are we distressed by our sin? As we read through those traits of our ancestors in the faith, the, the rebellion and the rejection and the refusal to listen, can we see those traits in our own lives? And if we can't, I, I wonder if that means we aren't spending the time we need for self-reflection. These guys give a, a quarter of this day to confession. When was the last time we even give a quarter of an hour? to looking back at our lives with the Bible open and asking some difficult questions of ourselves. One of my lecturers at Bible college talked about the Christian life being like a, a spiritual gym. And so in the gym, if all I do is upper body exercises, I'll have a shredded upper body, more shredded. I know that's what you're thinking, more shredded than I am at the minute. Uh, but it doesn't do anything for my healthy body overall, does it? It doesn't give anything for my abs or my legs or, or no cardio. It, it leaves me unbalanced. And so it is with the Christian life. If the only exercise that we do spiritually, say, is praise, and we're praising God in song and in prayer and in, in conversation, well, our experience of Christianity is going to be unbalanced. It means if we've no room for confession of sin, well, we'll have a, an inflated view of ourselves. We'll think highly of ourselves because we're not used to being self-reflectively critical of ourselves. We'll struggle then when other people criticize us. There's no room for that in our, in our makeup. And we lose a, a sense of our deep gratitude for Jesus dealing with our sin. Now we need to exercise 
confession in our spiritual gyms. And the good news is that this is something we can do, even tonight, all of us can. We don't need a quarter of a day. We can start with a quarter of an hour to sit down with God's Word and look back quietly, perhaps over the weekend or this past week, and ask ourselves some questions from Nehemiah chapter 9. Have I given thanks today for God's good gifts? Have I consciously rejected his commandments for my life? Have I cast his law, his word behind my back? Am I ignoring him? Have I been stubborn? I know what he wants, but I just don't want to go that way. Let those questions seek in and and ask the spirit to bring things to mind. He will convict us. And as they come up, take them to God in a, a genuine apology, a confession prayer, and and building that habit into our routines, that exercise into our lives, that's where we cultivate a, a culture of heartfelt confession. And as we do that as individuals, that actually changes the nature of our community as a whole. Remember, Israel is doing this as a nation in chapter nine. So I wonder if we have time to prayerfully confess our sin together as a whole church. It's important that we do because it recognizes that all of us, leaders and everyone, get things wrong and need to bring our lives before the Lord. We are all prone to wander as the old hymn goes. And to do that helps us as a church maintain healthy relationships, not just with the Lord, but with each other, right? If I'm confessing my sin to God and I'm looking around the room and thinking, I actually haven't sorted out that argument I had with that brother or that sister a few weeks ago, It's a reminder to go and fix that relationship under God. It is good for us as a community to recognize our sin and to take responsibility for it and to apologize, to confess it, to seek God's forgiveness. And there is forgiveness. The people of God know this. It's the the second half of verse 17. If this is the only verse you remember from Nehemiah 9, this is gold. Look with me at the end of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. That might be the memory verse of the entire Old Testament. It is the catch cry of Israel. And it is just as true for you and I as it was for them. No matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we're wrapped up in even today, you're sitting there with that niggling thought thinking, God couldn't forget me, not forgive me, not with what I've done. Well, friend, let the beauty of this truth wash over you. God is a God who forgives. We can always and forever look to the cross And know with certainty that God has forgiven us because of what Jesus has done for us. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is the gospel from Nehemiah 9. Isn't that good news? I think it's good news. All right. God is working as his word is read with awe-filled worship and heartfelt confession. Last thing. He sparks life-changing commitment. That's what we see as we move in to chapter 10. Misha Ketchell is the editor of The Conversation online. He says, if action does not follow an apology, it can be considered cheap talk. 
Well, there is no cheap talk with Israel. There is a commitment to life change. Let's pick up the story uh, in 9 verse 38. Because of all this, all that we've looked at, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Hands up if you've been to a wedding or you're married. Here we've got a few people. That's good. Well, if you've been to a wedding, you'll know the power of a written covenant or, or promises where your name is on a, a series of documents and then you sign them publicly to show the world that you're going to own the responsibilities that are written in those documents. You're going to honor the person that you're committing to. And this is similar. It's a covenant in writing with all their names on it. In fact, 27 verses of names at the start of chapter 10. There is no clicking maybe on this one. It's the the priests, the Levites, the leaders of God's people, but not just them. This is great. Have a look at verse 28 if your Bible's open. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their, no- their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. You see that? It's men, women, and children committing to this deep, life-changing direction. And it's worth us noting that kids are part of the covenant community of God. They're part of this commitment. I love that Paul prayed for them in his prayer just before we heard the Bible read. From the smallest babies to the kids in city kids to the teenagers at city youth, all of them are welcome in God's covenant community. There is no age barrier or age requirement to be a member. That is good news, isn't it? Well, after all those names come the promises to change. And the headline is that these are specific, all of life and ongoing commitments. They make promises not to marry outside of God's covenant community. We've seen this before in Ezra. Uh, This is really important. If there's one way to pull us away from a relationship with God, it's by being in a relationship with someone who's of a different faith. We're we're naturally going to grow cold, inevitably, and they promise to stop. There's a commitment to stop doing business on the Sabbath day and and maintain the Sabbath year, uh, they will obey God's good commands to rest, even when productivity and economic gain are at stake. They promise to maintain a life of worship in the temple, to not neglect God's people, God's leaders, and God's house. All of these were failings that had been exposed as they read through God's word. And it implicates all of their lives, doesn't it? The home life, worship and farming and commerce and their social lives. They give all of it to God. And what is that if not the Christian life? Where we offer all of ourselves, everything we have to God as a a spiritual act of worship. And so again, it's worth us asking, are there any parts of our life that we're holding back from God? Maybe there's little habits that are out of sync with his good purpose for our lives. Maybe there's an area that you're desperate to control and you're not willing to entrust to him. 
Maybe it is a relationship that you know is leading you away from him and you just don't want to give it up. Here's the Apostle Paul. In Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, that is your whole selves, all of life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Please see that this worship, this sacrifice is a response to what God has done. It is not a way that they or we can earn God's favor. It's not like we kind of work up the credit and God will love us because of what we do. No, we experience his favor, his blessing, and we respond with worship and commitment to him. See, down the hill, God is at work. When people read his word, he sparks awe-filled worship and heartfelt confession and deep, life-changing commitments. He is working in us just as sure as he was in the people with Nehemiah. And in fact, he's given us more, hasn't he? Because he's given us his spirit, living in us, dwelling us, making us day by day more like Jesus in our character. And so as we go through life, We'll experience this cycle of life through these seasons of worship and then failure and then confession and then commitment and then worship and failure and confession and commitment. And on it will go until Jesus returns, until we see him face to face and we don't need to do confession anymore. There will be no failure. There will be no more sin. He will have dealt with it completely and fully. I don't know where you're at in that cycle today, but I do know that God will be working in you as we speak. Maybe he's stirring up worship in you. Maybe you've grown dull in your enthusiasm for him over these last few weeks or months. Maybe he's convicting you of sin or patterns of sin in your life that you've just grown apathetic about. Maybe you've been smashed with guilt and shame, because all you can see is your sin. You can't see a way past it. And so today he's reminding you of his deep love and his endless mercy and grace. Maybe he's calling you to recommit to him because filled with his spirit's power, deep life change is possible. We're going to finish our time together by thinking about that very question. What is God working in me today? Before we share communion together, I'm going to leave some quiet space for us. I'll pray to prompt us with some thoughts, but really this is an opportunity for you to talk to God so that we might see where he is working in us and and be encouraged by that, that he is living and active through his word. So friends, will you pray with me? with those things in mind. Lord, show us, we pray, where you are at work in us today. Friends, I wonder how has your heart been stirred to worship God today? What sin have you noticed in your life as we've read his word?
Are there parts of your life that you are holding back from God? Perhaps it's time or talent or treasure. Are there things that you sense God is calling you to change for your good and for his glory? Heavenly Father, would you ground us in this great truth, loving God, your truth that as the rain and snow come down from heaven, would your word go out from your mouth and not return to you empty? Lord, would it accomplish that for which you purpose? And would it succeed in the thing for which you have sent it? Lord, be at work in us, I pray, and encourage us as we see the signs of your work in us through your word by the power of your spirit. It's in your strong name that we pray it, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.